The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Gina Barnett began her career on stage and has spent more than 30 years writing, coaching, and playing. She says great acting teachers spend their lives observing human beings and behaviors to impart to their students the tools to truthfully portray them. The techniques actors use to usher audiences into imaginary worlds evolved for a primary purpose to emotionally move those audiences. And the techniques and tools actors use can be employed by all professionals not to act, but to increase their ability to connect, inspire, motivate, and lead. Gina Barnett has coached C-suite executives and leaders worldwide from Fortune 500 companies to startups, small businesses, and nonprofits, and she's been speaker coach for TED Talks for the past five years. And uh, she says that as you play the instrument that is your body, you can change how it experiences the world around you and how others view and hear you. Gina Barnett is author of the new book. It's called Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success. And she joins us for the hour today. Gina Barnett, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you began your career as, a, as an actress? Yes. Uh, how, how did you morph? Crazy me. <laughs> how did you morph from that into, into, into coaching, essentially? Well, I started studying very, very young. I was very intrigued by watching people. I just, as a kid, was just fascinated by how people moved and communicated, kind of obsessed with that, and was a terrible mimic myself, and uh, loved mimicry and playing a lot. And so I started studying quite young. I found a little acting school and went every Saturday. Um, and there was something about being in the class that just totally intrigued me. So even when I became a professional actress, got my equity card, started performing, I kept studying. I never stopped studying and went straight from studying into teaching uh, in my late 20s because I just loved watching what happened as you helped people become better and better and better. And then after 20 years of working with professional actors, I thought, wow, non-actors should know this stuff. It's really powerful information to help people connect. And so I slowly morphed into working with business leaders. And as I say in the book, it's not to make them inauthentic, not to make them fake, not to make them actory at all. It's to really get rid of the things that are preventing them from connecting, to remove the blocks, because a lot of people, we all have places where we're blocked and sort of understanding what that is and sort of unpacking that with people so that they can really connect is um, my passion. So uh, connection, is that the goal? What's, what's the goal? Yeah, it's connection, it's clarity. You work with people who are such subject experts in different fields, and they're so immersed in the weeds of what they know. And yet, very often, they have to communicate that knowledge to people who are not as deeply versed. And so how do you find the language and the structure to communicate that information to a different audience? So, for example, I work a lot with the pharmaceutical industry. I work with microbiologists who then have to go to senior management who may not necessarily be scientists and explain to them what they're working on so that they can get budget for a clinical trial, let's say. So how do you take that information that you know so deeply and translate it to a given audience so that they can then make a decision or be inspired or whatever your goal is? So yes, it's about clarity and connecting both on the intellectual level, but also connecting on the human level. How do you move people? 
how do you sway people? How do you influence people? Which is um, complicated stuff and also very interesting to me. So, and why are some people so effective at it and others not? And that's something and, we all do, isn't it? So we all have to do, to do that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, scientists. I, I work with a fair number of scientists, interview them, and the, you know, it's fascinating work. Some of them are naturally better at communicating than others, but I guess th- these are skills you're saying that you can learn. Yeah, because you know, the, when I talk about the body as an instrument, I really mean that in the sense that if you think of any other instrument, you know, a violin or a piano, you know, if it's out of tune, it's hard to listen to. It's that the brain goes to that dissonance and goes, Ugh, you know, go away dissonance, right? And the body as an instrument needs to be tuned up as well. And when it's not, that distraction becomes really hard to get past. You can get past it, but the brain has to actively spend time tuning that out. So, you know, I'll give you like a very basic example. I was work, working with someone who was giving a presentation and a uh, very smart person, but had what's called, well, she basically has a terribly froggy sound in her voice, what they call fry, but hers was worse than fry. It was just really hoarse sounding. And irrespective of her content within about, I don't know, 30 seconds to a minute, minute and a half of her beginning her presentation, people all around the room began to clear their throats. And they were doing that for complicated reasons. Mm -hmm. One, her hoarse throat put them into their own throats as they were listening. So they were sort of aware of their own body in that moment, unconsciously clearing their throats. But the second reason they were doing it was they were all trying to signal to her also unconsciously, clear your throat. This is annoying. I can't hear your content because all I'm hearing is a very hoarse kind of sounding sound, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like a very basic example of an interruption. Uh, we'll talk further about uh, some very interesting uh, signals that your your body uh, sends out. And, and as you say, uh, people construct a story about you based on, on what your body is doing. I want to follow up with vocal fry. Uh, there's a kind of an ongoing discussion in, in public radio world about uh, the advisability <laughs> of vocal fry. In fact, uh, the, the, uh, the, the show This American Life did a whole episode recently on vocal fry, whether it was, oh my God, whether so it was good, or, good or bad. Uh, well, it's so funny because as, a, as somebody who's spent a lot of years studying the voice and working with the voice, you know, it's, it's such a technical term for those of us who know voice coaching um, that it's become ubiquitous and sort of a term is very funny. I think it's a meme, just like um, vocal, uh, what they call up speaking has become, I call it vocal lift, but that tendency to finish, finish like that and yeah. answer, you know, answer question by answering <laughs> like that and lifting your voice at the end became a meme and sort of yes. spread through the universe. And now they're saying fry uh, has become another one. I don't understand why it's appealing to me it sounds annoying <laughs> on the other hand yeah. there it is and it's and it is this tendency to drop onto the chords and sort of end with a kind of hoarse sound at the end of a sound <laughs> I, I, and it's to me it puts a lot of stress on the chords and the larynx and is really not necessary yeah i'm all for an open resonant voice that has a lot of tune and melody and pitch variation so that you can really train the ear of both the speaker and your audience to know what's important in a sentence because we wait for those signifiers yep. and if everything has a pattern it's very hard to to know what the most important content is, and, and styles do change. And it, it, yeah, I guess you have to communicate to the audience that, uh, that that's in front of you. By the way, uh, uplift is very annoying to me as well. Uh, it's uh, it's just I I'm not on board with that. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it really does. It it it's so much about not 
owning your your authority. Yeah. It's it's this, this chronic asking at the end of every statement, do you agree? Am I okay? And it's just, uh, it's quite, I don't know, I, I feel like it really erodes one's presence. What What's behind it, do you think? What, what are people trying to communicate with that? I think it started in the 70s with this sort of uh, Valley Girl California thing, and as many things California goes, the rest of the country follows. I, I'm not sure, but it did hit, and for some reason it struck a chord, particularly in young women, and it's just taken over. On the other hand, I mean, I remember working years ago with a very professional woman who was in her mid to late 30s, and I put her on video. She had no idea of the degree to which she had, she did it, and she heard it. She was completely and utterly shocked and appalled that she was doing this. She couldn't hear it. She had no idea, and she lost it. She heard it. She was so, so amazed by it. She said that she just ended it within a day. She said, wow, that's over. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing that's tricky about us. We're very, very habit-driven, and we, don't, we, we can't be aware necessarily of what we're doing on a repetitive basis because it you know, lays down these deep, deep, deep neural tracks, and we don't even feel it. So changing that becomes important when you get feedback where someone says, well, this is something that is, again, interrupting the flow. This is dissonant. This is something that's out of tune, both with who you are in terms of your role and also how you're delivering the message. So you need somebody outside of yourself to sort of videotape it or tape you or give you feedback and then give you practices to change it, too, because we are... We tend to do the same things over and over again. And those unconscious habits can be very deeply granted. In fact, go to character. I wonder if you'd talk about Bruce. That was that's quite the story in your in your book. Uh, in the oh, chapter, have a heart. Well, you know, with with him, it, it, in the end, what it was. Well, what what I talk about in the book was essentially when he came in to meet me, he was asked to to be coached by me because he was taking on a a very significant leadership role in his organization, and he was, he was young for that role. And when we had our first meeting, he essentially uh, dismissed everything I had to say. He interrupted me. He contradicted me. He didn't listen. His body language was very dismissive. He was, his foot was shaking. His head was you know, shaking dismissively. And I tried on a couple of occasions to you know, get my point across, and he, no matter what I did, he just was utterly dismissive. And so I just stopped talking and let him carry on. Meanwhile, I had a video recording the entire conversation. And at the very end, I um, took the video out and I handed it to him. But before I did that, I basically laid down what I observed. And I told him that I thought he was obnoxious, (laughs) that he didn't listen, that he was full of himself. I don't remember the precise words, but I really gave it to him. And he was furious at me, and he snatched the video out of my hand and went storming away. And I thought, okay, good riddance. I'm never going to have to deal with this guy. And then a few weeks later, he called, and uh, he had watched the video. And the video doesn't lie. Uh, He could then see, after he settled down, that everything I said was indeed true, that he interrupted, he didn't listen, and... um, I don't know if I can say the word on radio, can I? But uh, maybe I just uh, said, a cleaned up you know, version. Who would ever want to work for <laughs> right. that a hole? Right. Yeah. Um, and we began to work together. I was. I said, first of all, you have. It's incredibly courageous of you to call. I'm deeply, deeply honored and thrilled that you've done that. And what happened, and what we really unpacked through the work, was that he was way too young for this role, and so. His idea of how to be a leader was to be imperious and cut people off and 
and sort of be demeaning and demanding versus really own up to his vulnerability and fear and his youth. And by almost just acknowledging that, things really began to change. He began to hold his tongue, not interrupt, to listen much more deeply. He settled down his body. He didn't keep shaking his foot. He made much more sustained eye contact. His eyes actually softened. It was extraordinary to see the change literally in the way he used his eyes and how he opened up. And it was, um, it was an extraordinary process and very moving to see somebody who had developed habits as a compensation for insecurity. And I think many people do that. Many, many people do that. And to his credit, he, he saw it, right? And he, and he changed. Yeah. I mean, that was what was so absolutely gorgeous about him was that he did finally, you know, he told me when he called me, he said, I spent three weeks basically thinking about having you, you know, murdered. I was so angry at you. And, you know, things like that are very big indicators that you're touching something. You know, people don't have that kind of reaction unless you really hit on something quite profound. But to his credit, instead of just lying in bed at night wanting to have me murdered, he actually looked at the video. And when he did, he was shocked by his own behavior, which was amazing that he was able to do that. Now, are you, uh, how, how do we label what you're, what you're talking about? Is it body language? You talk about embodiment. What's the difference? Well, it's everything. I mean, it's, the body is the repository of our history. And so, yes, it's body language, but it, you know, it's part psychology, it's body language. I don't separate them. I think that the body profoundly incorporates our history, and it also profoundly sets where we're going to go. So, you know, another example that, you know, what I mentioned in the book is a woman who was also very, very sophisticated, very smart, could not hear a word she said, you know, had what I called sort of minor lockjaw, hardly opened her mouth despite her incredible knowledge and expertise. And uh, when we met one-on-one after a, a group training, and I discussed this with her, and I very gently put my hands on the, the, very, the tender little muscles at the jawbone, the jawline with a hinge there where the jaw opens, right in front of the ears and she burst into tears immediately and basically said that she had kept her mouth shut her whole life because she had been molested as a child and told that if she ever told anyone Mm. and she never had until that moment that she would be killed so this is an extreme example of somebody's history you know a metaphor if i tell you something if you speak i will be killed of someone literally silencing herself and how that went into the body her mouth hardly opened she spoke at such a minimal level so i think there's this incredible relationship between our history and our body and how trauma and emotional and psychological change all kinds of things live on and can house themselves within the body and then become manifestations of something that we signal so there's a lot of ways, you know, when, when you're teaching acting, for example, there are a lot of ways to work with actors to get them to connect with a role and to connect emotionally. There's a technique called sense memory, which kind of came out of the Stanislavskian technique, which is you recall a childhood event or recall a very strong emotional memory from your life, and just the recall itself brings up that feeling. And, you know, so, so actors like Marlon Brando and Paul Newman, they were, they were basically trained in what's called the method. But there's other techniques that are very physically oriented, as in some teachers say, you can just put your body in the position, your face in the position of grief and sadness, and it may trigger the emotion as well. So you can do memory, you can do it from the body, but the fact is it's all linked up to each other. And there's increasing evidence 
in neuroscience to say that the body influences our emotions as much, if not more, than our emotions influence our body. So I work in every direction possible when answer to your question. I work mm-hmm. with information that bodies give me. I work with the stories that people tell me, their history. I work at the challenges that they face in business in terms of communication challenges. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it except that, you know, I have big ears and a big heart and I do my best. <laughs> uh, and I'll have you take me through uh, one of your coaching sessions. Uh, you opened the, after the break... You open the book with a very interesting example, uh, a woman named Claire. As I was reading this, my heart really went out to Claire, and I was, I was happy for her eventual success. Uh, just one example. Um, we'll talk more uh, following the break. Gina Barnett is with us. Her book is Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success. And I'll uh, be asking her about the TED Talks as well. She has 11 tips on the uh, TED site. Uh, to, uh, to give a good talk, which you could apply to, uh, to your life as well. Following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. On the next Radio Lab, we have here nine, nine babies. We need help. The increasingly complicated business of making a family. Two guys and, and three women. Four countries. Yeah, planes. Three jet babies. planes. Two, wait, jet Hundreds planes. Hundreds of, of thousands of dollars. And the women behind it all. The women are—they are in charge of deciding how they want their life to be, and we don't have to look at them with pity. Join us Tuesday morning at ten on Utah Public Radio. It is clear that communities in northern Utah, the Uinta Basin, and Utah County need to clean up the air out there. So why do we continue to idle our cars, take short trips around the neighborhood, and avoid public transportation? Utah Public Radio wants to know what it will take to get you to take action. The conversation continues. Share your insight at upr.org. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest today is Gina Barnett. Her book is Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success. Applies to uh, all of us, I believe. She's coached uh, executives and leaders worldwide, from Fortune 500 companies to startups, small businesses, and nonprofits. She's been speaker coach for TED Talks for the past five years. Um, she says that as you play the instrument that is your body, you can change how it experiences the world around you and how others view and hear you. Uh, you open the book, Gina Barnett, with a with a with a pretty amazing transformation. A, a lady named Claire. What if you tell us yes. about her? Well, Claire uh, was a very, very, very intelligent and loved her job, but for some reason was not progressing, not moving up within the organization, despite the organization wanting her to. And when we first met, she had this kind of odd throat clearing habit, which I noticed pretty quickly. I pointed out, I think it's at our second meeting, and it was so funny because I remember her saying something like, oh, you could tell I do that. 
like, yes, I can, I can hear you clearing your throat. And I can see your throat, your glottal moving up and down, stuff like that. So, um, and she said it was allergies, but I didn't believe it. I thought it was something else. I thought it was tension and something else. Anyway, uh, we, we worked through some of that. We worked on her posture, which was not great and needed really, she needed to open up and lift and sort of inhabit her body a little bit more with greater authority and ease. But the, the real event was when I went to her office. She had, up until that point, come to my office. And when I walked in, I was kind of mind-blown by the view that she had, which was extraordinary, and sort of commented on, wow, what a gorgeous, amazing view you have of sort of all of Manhattan at your feet. And she very very quietly and quickly said, I don't deserve it. And, um, you know, you wait as a coach sometimes or as a teacher for these quiet revelations, these moments when something pings, and it can be very quiet, very subtle, but that's where, in terms of the work I do, I feel that the real mystery lies, and who hears it, how it's heard, and what you do with it. And so I asked her about that, and um, basically what came up was that she didn't feel that she fit in the role here, because she was essentially, as she said, a small-town girl. And here was all of Manhattan at her feet, and it, it wasn't um, it wasn't so much that she felt like a fake or a phony. It was really a deeper issue of of what what she deserved. And so we played. I you know I come from the theater, and I think imagination and curiosity and play are so rooted in how we understand the world. And for some reason, we give up play very early in our lives, and I think it's terribly unfortunate because I think there's so many other ways to play in the world. And so I said, I want to play. Let's pretend you're queen. And she was just sort of shocked by this. And I said, come on, let's let's do it. And I have an ability to just sort of slip into an improvisation with my clients, and, and it always blows my mind. Even the most senior CEOs will suddenly slip in with me. It's just fabulous because I think at root we all want to do this. And so I put an imaginary crown on her head, and I gave her a robe and a staff, and we began to walk around her office and pretend she was queen and that everything outside of her window was part of her realm. And um, it was hysterically funny, and she really, she had a great time, but, but the turn was also when she said, but that's not who I really am. You know, I'm not this. That's, this, this is egocentric. I'm not this person. And my answer really to that, and when I hear as I try to push people more into owning their expertise, is A, how do you know who you are, really, in the sense that we are an evolving being our whole lives and we can, so much of who we are is shaped by how we think of ourselves. And my second answer was, you know, by not giving yourself permission to really live in this role fully, you're actually underserving the organization. By really taking on your expertise, saying, wow, they do pay me this because, for, for this job because I know my stuff, and I am here to do a good job, you can actually deliver far more effectively. It's when you hold yourself back with a lack of confidence or a lack of belief that you're actually not doing your job as well. And that was sort of the big turn, and it is for many people when they think of it not as egocentricity but as service, to be as incredible and as huge and as talented as you can be so that you can serve more effectively, not so that you get more attention. And... I believe in service very deeply, and I think that that's basically why we're all here at a very root level and um, versus greed. And so um, she took it on, and she began to really incorporate that belief. And 
within 18 months had two, two promotions. It's just like boom, boom, boom. And because she manifested herself quite differently and it was seen differently and it was thrilling and exciting and she began to do projects that she loved and it was just a fantastic outcome. So, but the, the core message of that story is how do we conceive of ourselves? What are the inner thoughts that we carry that limit our ability to fulfill our potential? And if you can say it out loud and hear it and then adjust that how through some other thinking modality, then who knows what will happen? Mm. Yeah, who knows yes. where you might go? And again, right. that's so much of this comes from the theater. I watched, you know, what makes you believe someone who's suddenly playing King Lear? And it's imagination and play and permission. Actors give themselves permission to inhabit another reality and bring us all along with it. And I feel that so many people, because they don't have access to the, their imagination, their sense of play, they limit where they can go, if that makes sense. Yes. Does that make sense? It, yeah. it definitely makes sense, yes. Yeah. Um, and so, as you, as you write, we, the audience, or it might be an audience of one, the person you're speaking to, mm-hmm. um, they construct a history, right, based on, based on everything you're doing, including what you're doing with your body. And... And so I wonder, I want to take that one step further. One of the goals, I, I think, is is presence, right? Which you could also yeah. call charisma, the, the overall impression that, that, you, that you give somebody. But I've always thought of charisma as, you know, as characters, as, and therefore, if I'm trying to pre- project presence or charisma, uh, it, there, there's an element of, of falsehood there, fakery. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the negative mm-hmm. connotation of playing the part. Mm-hmm. How do you address that? Well, I think charisma, I think it's, it all depends on how you define it. For me, presence is a number of things. It's an alignment. It's an alignment between the, what is your objective in a given communication? What do I want from this exchange? How then do I frame my content so that what I want is clear and clearly expressed? How do I then attune the body so that the style of communication is, again, aligned with that objective and that intention. And then how do I deal with what's really going on right in front of me in the moment, which is, to me, the most critical part of presence? How do I be absolutely on the edge of time, given all of that? So, um, you know, I'll give you really a, a personal example from my own life, which was years ago, someone that I knew very well had a severe, severe, severe stroke. And this was someone in, in her 90s. Uh, I was her medical proxy. This was someone who spoke seven languages, suddenly woke up unable to speak at all, had lived 90 years. I knew what her wishes and goals were, which were she did not want to be on life support of any kind. And um, in the hospital, as you probably know, residents are about 26 years old, and they turn over every eight-hour shifts. And... I was dealing with one very young, very hopeful doctor after another who kept saying things like, oh, with six, eight months of physical therapy, she will this. this." And so every eight hours I had to think of my objective, which was to protect her and to fulfill her wishes. I had to get myself in shape in order to get through to all doctors' point of view, which is to heal, get her better, get her better, not end life. And I had to, every eight hours, go through the exact same heartbreaking conversation, which was, this person needs to be let go. 
over and over. And this is, a, you know, additional to my own incredible heartbreak at this time, because this is somebody who I adored. So, you know, I knew what I wanted, but more important, I knew what she wanted desperately because we had discussed it. I knew that every new doctor had a very, very strong, very strong point of view and was going to come back at me with, we can make her better. And I knew that I had to be absolutely present in the moment with each one of them and hear their point of view, but also work with them to get them over to my point of view to protect her wishes. And so it was all of it. You know, I had to adjust my style differently for each doctor. Each doctor was different in terms of culture and age and opinion. I had to clarify my thoughts each time very vividly for each of them to get through. And I had to also be absolutely present in the moment, despite all of my emotional uh, turmoil, which was huge, to hear and navigate the, this, the isness of each moment with each of them. So that's a very, very personal story. I had no idea I was going to tell you this, mm-hmm. but that's what comes to mind in terms of what is, it's not about being fake. It's not about being actory. It's about pulling together all of those pieces of whatever the communication is and aligning them so you can deal with whatever comes your way. Mm-hmm. Lack of presence to me, lack of that is not taking in the information that's coming at you and just being a bulldozer and plowing over what's ever in front of you, irrespective of the feedback that you're getting. Real presence navigates the moment differently. It's sort of like an actor who does the same night, night after night after night after night, versus they're wooden. They become, they become robots versus really alive and honoring that the audience every night is completely different and comes in with a different energy and different mood. Friday night is not Saturday night ever in that theater. And so, you know, if you're still playing it on Saturday the way you did Friday, it's not going to work. So how do you adjust? That, to me, is really what presence is about. And, the, and, you and say, I think charisma is, is used, ir, you know, irreplaceably represents, but I don't think they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. And as you write, um, keep in mind that who you are, your personality is well established. You've been talking about that, but being aware of that. Personalities don't change, but behaviors can. You, you, can, right. you can learn techniques, right? That's your whole premise here. You can learn techniques and, and you can practice and you can get better at, at aligning all of this. Absolutely. I mean, your personality is your personality. That's who you are. That's great. That's set. It's pretty much done. But your habits, your behaviors can modify your whole life long. Absolutely. Uh, Here's an email. If you have a question or comment, maybe you have an experience you'd like to share. You can reach us by email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Here's Bernadette in St. George. Uh, who says, I feel like a theme I'm hearing, uh, be it uh, the woman with the lockjaw or stories of low confidence, something at some time impresses upon us a rule or an expectation to communicate by. I personally recognize societal norms and habits as a precursor to my communication repertoire, in addition to my own personal history. How do we combat the world around us that may act as a force that taints our communication confidence? So we, we've been talking about you know, the personal... The, you know the personal factors uh, but then on top of that i think as bernadette rightly says there's there's norms and there are things we learn absolutely absolutely i you know i had a client recently he was from pakistan and um he had been transferred from pakistan to work in the united states and he, he you know, as a pakistani man he said to me very clearly in pakistan we stand with our arms crossed in front of us that's our sort of 
go-to position. It's a cultural thing as well. And I've worked with a lot of different cultures. And, and I think what she's just talking about is we don't grow up in a vacuum. We grow up in a culture. And those cultural influences absolutely affect our body, our body language, and how we think of ourselves. So he was very intriguing because he said, wow, here I am now in the United States where sitting or standing in a meeting with your arms crossed in front of each other is considered sort of blocked and cut off and defensive. And I've been told that I should open up my arms, you know, kind of have them open on the chair, arms of the chair, or have them open by my sides when I'm standing. And he said, but the problem for me when I do that is I literally lose my train of thought which to me is so fascinating mm. that the, the, the hard wiring between gesture and thought is also very, very deep and can be very cultural. And so we, you know, we had to work on a step-by-step process to enable him to both adapt to an American cultural body language that didn't feel off-putting to those he was with, but also to really deal with the loss of his thought as he would lose his train of thought when he felt so open and vulnerable and his body position didn't feel typical for him. So, you know, the, the answer to the question is the influences, psychological, cultural, gender, sexual, they're there all our lives long. And, and we have to have a dialogue with them and ask them at different points in our lives, are these appropriate for who I am now? Mm-hmm. And do they work for who I am now? You know, is it appropriate to wear high, high heels and a really, really short skirt at a certain point in time for certain women? Is it even appropriate to wear high heels for certain women who walk terribly in them? I see people walking down the streets of Manhattan sometimes in heels going, you look, you look completely off balance. You don't look grounded at all. Other people can wear high heels and just move like, you know, like gazelles. So these things, you know, how do we dress? How do we move? There has to be a, a, a current conversation with the self about what is appropriate for who I am now and who, how I wish to be perceived. It's not a one-stop, I'm done, I'm 30, I figured it out. And it's similar with communication. Communication efficacy and, and, and grace and confidence is an ongoing process. This is something that we can keep perfecting our lo- whole life long. It's not uh, you take a course and you're done. And because every single communication is different. Every single person you meet communicates in their own way. And how you find your way in to connect with that person has to be utterly unique. Here's another uh, listener question. Uh, uh, Contrasting men and women. And so they're asking about women's body language uh, and difference between men and women's body language, using that term. Uh, but but it's you know it's somewhat different culture. Um, I I know from experience. I was raised with uh, four sisters, and then my little brothers came later. Uh, and I found when I started associating with my little brothers, once we got back together uh, up at college, um, they for example they didn't take care of my feelings as well as the <laughs> my sisters did. <laughs> they weren't as careful, for example. I had to I had to relearn the style of communication. So I wonder about body language. Well, I think men and women obviously move very, very differently. Our center of gravity in our body is completely different, and it impacts how we how we walk. And it, you know, we're we're different. I mean, we're different on every level, physically, obviously, um, but culturally as well men seem to be much more comfortable taking up big amounts of space. I can't tell you the number of times I'll I'll walk into a meeting and um, the men in the room will be sitting with their 
arms behind their heads with their elbows, you know, pointed way out from either side of the head. Sometimes their their legs spread wide, or sometimes they've even walked into an executive office and his, his you know his leg has been up, foot has been up on the top of his desk. I mean, they just sort of like take up space. Um, and I rarely see women do that. Why? It's, I think all of the ways with that we move are very culturally embedded in us, even more so than gender in some ways. Uh, I worked with a, a very sophisticated woman from, from China who uh, was asked to speak on behalf of her bank to go to major corporations and heads of state to explain the intricacies of Chinese banking, which is very, quite, very different than Western banking. And she was in her mid-40s with two teenage kids, and she'd show up, and people thought she was the MBA intern. I mean, and, she, and it was purely her body language, which was, as she put it, very Asian. You know, her head was tilted, her hands were behind her back, her voice was very high and thin. And we really worked hard to change her, her volume, to change her, in her voice into a, from a, a high, thin voice to a much deeper chest resonance, and she changed her walk and her head, and, and she said, point blank, if I ever go back to China and my mother sees this, she'll be furious with me because I seem like a Westerner now. But she needed to walk into these organizations and not be called the MBA intern. She needed to walk in as the expert that she was, and so she understood she needed... Uh, to have a kind of flexible style. You can be one thing one place and one thing another, which we all do. We change our style all the time. If you're hanging out with friends at a party on a Friday night, you're going to move and laugh and talk differently than if you're going for a job interview on Saturday morning. I mean, that's just, just that's how we are. And we know how to do this on an instinctive level. We've learned how to do this. It's about having some kind of conscious mastery of it when it is in your way. And when it's when you're doing it inappropriately, and how do how do you tweak it? So I don't really think it's so much male female as much as it is very much your own psychological, physical history and culture. I think culture has a an enormous impact. I mean, I was in a I was in a in Switzerland doing a training years ago, and in this very high end restaurant, and a group of like seven American men walked in and had they were so loud I couldn't believe it. I wanted to hide under the table. <laughs> They had no awareness that they were in a different culture where people speak at a softer volume. Mm. They, they just, they were clueless. And it was truly embarrassing for me as a fellow American to think you're in another culture, dial it down a little bit, be sensitive to the room that you're in, and change your behavior. But they didn't. So that's what I think is much more challenging, is when you're clueless than when whatever your gender perhaps may be. Mm. Yeah, you're, 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 you're reminding me of, uh, I spent some time in Argentina when I came back at uh, the Miami airport, the first thing I noticed was Americans use a hard R. Everybody seemed like pirates to me, you know, R, R, R. But but the, the second thing was everybody seems so confident. They're, they're taking up large swaths of space Huge walking around. It's, it's the American culture manifests itself in, in our body language. It does. We have this enormous continent. We have this big, big, big country, and we take up space in a way that just you don't see that in other cultures. It's extraordinary. Uh, before we take a break, we'll take a break here soon. Uh, here is a uh, follow-up uh, from uh, Samantha and Logan, who says, I'm curious what Gina's opinion is regarding uh, the advice to women to adapt masculine characteristics to better communicate in the workplace. I'm hoping she disagrees with this advice as much as I do. I don't know what masculine characteristics are, per se. I mean, yeah, men speak louder, they gesture more broadly, they, but I, I think every person has to understand their own value, who they are, and speak their truth. 
I don't think women have to become more masculine. They have to become more confident in their own expertise and finding their voice and speaking up, Hmm. however that may be. And, you know, a lot of times I work with people where it's not them. It's the culture they're in. It's the business culture. it's It's not fitting for whatever reason. And cultures don't change. Cultures really don't change. So you either have to adapt to the culture or you have to quit and leave and find another place to work. But it's not about becoming more male. It's about becoming more you. Let's uh, let's take a break. We're talking, by the way, with Gina Barnett. Her interesting book is Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success. In our last segment coming up, uh, you'll want to stay tuned for this. Gina Barnett, one of the exercises uh, that uh, she uh, gives in the book is uh, based on Monty Python. So that gives us an excuse to play a bit of the sketch, The Ministry of Silly Walks. We'll hear that. And uh, we'll also have another email from uh, from a listener. And uh, I'll make reference to uh, a wonderful movie impromptu as well. All that in the last segment coming up following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting the Repertory Dance Theater 50th Anniversary Performance, celebrating art, ingenuity, and movement, Friday, January 29th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. This is Science by the Slice. When discussing how one species evolved into two or more distinct species, scientists often surmise the uplift of mountains which split populations of plants and animals was a contributing factor. Not so fast, says USU entomologist James Pitts. You might expect this of desert species, where the terrain is typically isolated by mountain ranges. But for some organisms, he says, evidence points to glaciations that occurred during the Ice Age. A foremost scholar of wasps known as velvet ants, Pitts compared molecular data from modern-day ants with data collected from fossils and says the findings support the idea that relatively recent glacial action rather than ancient mountain formation led to new species. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. I'm Jeremy Hobson. The confessed 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is just one of 93 detainees remaining at Guantanamo Bay, but his lawyer says getting him to trial is complicated by how he was interrogated. That's all classified. The government takes the position that they own these men's memories. The difficulty of closing Guantanamo. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have uh, about 10 minutes left in the conversation, and uh, you can join this uh, this conversation if you would like with your question or comment by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. My guest is Gina Barnett. Her book is Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success, and uh, she coaches uh, TED speakers. has been doing that since 2011. We'll talk about that as we go along. I want to open this uh, last segment of the program with a uh, listener uh, email. This is from Linda. 
Uh, do you have any tips for making a friend aware of the fact that she constantly interrupts when someone is telling a story or relating an experience? She always tries to relate what is being said to a personal situation or experience of her own. It's a struggle for the speaker to finish what she's saying. I feel she would be appreciative to know she's doing this, but I don't know how to approach it. Thank you. Well, as my husband is always fond of saying, when all else fails, try the truth. (laughs) So I would just recommend, depending on how close you are and how much this friend values your opinion, to just say, you know, uh, it would be great if you would not interrupt when I speak. Thanks. Just ask. Make her aware of it. She may not be aware of it. Some people interrupt because they get anxious that they will lose their train of thought. It's a very interesting challenge for some people. They're not aware of it. They have some sort of mental deficiency in terms of trusting their own memory system, and they think, if I don't say it right now, it'll disappear. So sometimes it's a, it, it can be a, a challenge, but if you point it out gently and kindly and say, I would love it if you can just let me finish speaking without interrupting, I'd appreciate it. Hmm. So direct, honesty, the best approach. I'm all for honesty. Okay. Life is short. All Get right. to the point. <laughs> okay. Well, let's hear this. I've made reference to it, and we've prepared this. Uh, one of the exercises in your book is based on a Monty Python uh, <laughs> uh, sketch. Let's hear a bit of this. This is uh, John Cleese, and I think it's Michael Palin. John Cleese is at the, he's a director of the Ministry of Silly Walks, and I think it's uh, Palin's coming in to, uh, to apply for a grant. Good morning. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, but I'm afraid my, uh, my walk has become rather sillier recently, and so it takes me rather long. Now then, um, what was it again? Well, sir, I, I have a, a silly walk, and I'd like to obtain a government grant to help me develop it. I see. Uh, may I see your silly walk? Yes, certainly, yes. That's it, is it? Yes, that's it, yes. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly silly, is it? I, I mean, the right leg isn't silly at all, and the left leg merely does a forward aerial half-turn every alternate step. Yes, but I think with, with government backing, I could make it very silly. <laughs> Mr. Pudier, the very real problem <laughs> is one of mine. I'm afraid that the Ministry of Silly is no longer getting the kind of support You see, there's defence, social security, health, housing, education, silly wars. They're all but last year, the government spent less on the Ministry of Civil Rights than it did on national defence. Now, we get 348 million pounds a year, which is supposed to be spent on all our available products. So it's it's hard times with the Ministry of Silly Walks. They're they're spending less on Silly Walks than on defense, which is you know, which is tragic. It's a crime. It's a crime. That's right. So you have this exercise. Tell us, uh, there are exercises you can do to to practice these things, and it all, I think, has to do with play. You you have to kind of get out Absolutely. outside your inhibitions. Absolutely. Well, I you know there are about a hundred exercises, if not more, in the book that are all geared to having you experience your body in a different way or observing bodies differently. And it's just, it's full of fun. And so it's really important to me that people have some fun with this stuff. But one of my all-time favorite exercises on the planet is to, uh, in particular if you live in an urban area, is to pick someone about 10 feet, 5 or 10 feet ahead of you and copy their walk. And um, a lot of times people go, oh, my God, what if somebody sees me? Well, no one's looking. Everyone's all caught up in their own head, trust me. And second of all, no one knows your walk necessarily. But the point is when you do this 
and you pick someone, uh, particularly somebody very extremely different from you, either much older or much bigger or much smaller, different gender, different race, whatever, a very different kind of body, and you actually copy their walk, a number of things happen. One, you experience your own body extremely differently. Our walks are probably one of the most habit-driven, deeply ingrained muscle memory things that we do. So suddenly by changing it, you can experience your own. Secondly, what begins to happen if you really stick with it is your emotions will shift. You'll begin to experience how you feel in a very different way. And often what happens is you actually almost take an empathic leap into this other person. You know, if you pick someone who's got a terribly, you know, out-of-place hip or, or, you know, has something quite different about their walk and you begin to move like them, it really creates in a very unintellectual way, a very immediate and physical way, the experience of being someone else. Mm. And I think that's important in our world. I think we need to take some empathic leaps much more frequently than we do. And so there are a lot of ways, and it's very fun, and then you can exaggerate it. Uh, Sometimes I do this with groups of people uh, just to experience how sometimes if you're a woman and you just walk like a man, see what that feels like if you're a man and you walk like a woman, if you're young and you walk like an old person, or if you're older and you try to copy a younger person's walk. It's really amazing what you emotionally go through in terms of understanding yourself and also beginning to imagine yourself as someone else. And I think we all need to do that a little bit more. We get very stuck in our own reality, and it's really a kind of vital exercise to imagine another reality every now and then. Hmm. You know, so we've been talking, uh, I've been thinking of uh, a wonderful movie, Impromptu. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's, it's about uh, culture vultures George and George Sand and, and her romance right. with, uh, with uh, Chopin. There's, right, a, there's right. a scene that she's trying to seduce him, and he's he's not he's he's attracted to her, but he's not going along. And, and then he explains. He says, "I you know my body is so sickly; it's failed me so many times. I prefer to live outside my body." Mm. Um, which is, I connect that up with today's virtual world, and you know some people, perhaps not for the same reason, are living large swaths of their life, sort of outside their body. Mm. And I wonder how you connect the principles you teach up to to that. Well, I have kind of a terror of virtual reality, um, and in particular where it's going with, with 3D you know, headsets that are going to have people, I don't know, jumping out of buildings or doing whatever they're going to do in their imagination. I, I think dreaming at night is, is plenty enough for me, but um, I, I think in some respects that virtual reality may be extraordinary in terms of working with post-stroke victims or learning how to ski if you've never been able to do it. I mean, in some respects, it might be really extraordinary to engage with a 3D reality and experience. But again, that's all happening in your mind. It's not really happening in your body. Um, I, you know, as you can tell from the book and just our conversation, I am a body person. I think mm-hmm. this thing we live in is just miraculous. It can impact so much of how we engage in the world and engage with each other. And we need to take care of it. We need to enjoy it. We need to experience it differently. We need to move out of our usual habit zones. We need to, you know, experience it in all different contexts, you know, swimming, running, sitting, standing, breathing. I mean, the breath is such an extraordinary way to link up your emotions and your heart and your your reactive center and i don't know i i don't i don't engage personally very much with virtual reality um 
I mean, I read, which I consider virtual reality because you read a book and it goes mm. into your brain and mm-hmm. you create the movie in the brain. I mean, so we all do it in some ways, but I also think that you can just be so deeply alive by just taking a walk in bare feet on grass and feeling the grass and seeing what that does. It's just digging your hands in some dirt, putting your hands in some water. We're sense organs. You know, we have these five amazing senses that give us incredible opportunities to experience the world. So I'm all about waking them up rather than shutting them down. We just have uh, about a minute left. Um, what if you talk, well, you know, your minute version of TED Talks. You, you, coach, <laughs> you coach TED speakers. Yes. And, and, you know, a lot of us are never going to give a TED Talk, but uh, a lot of the same principles apply, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, TED is all about ideas, and that's why I think it's generated such a different audience following from a lot of other conferences or a lot of other talks. And, you know, in all honesty, to get these talks where they are so spellbinding and and mesmerizing and amazing is, you know, sometimes 20, 30 drafts with speakers, and then there's the rehearsal process and getting them to feel comfortable on stage. It's very high stress now for people because it can be a completely life-altering experience. But it's wonderful. It's a generous audience. It's a curious audience. Uh, the TED team is amazing. And, um, but, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a paradigm-shifting medium at this point. And there's, um, it's, I can't tell you how many people now feel like I have to give a TED Talk to have my career move forward, which right. is kind of ironic. But it's, um, it's become an incredible platform. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there, uh, out of time, but you can read a lot more, of course, in the book, Play the Part, Master Body Signals to Connect and Communicate for Business Success. Gina Barnett has been my guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening today. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. What can a classic kid's comedy tell us about the racial politics of past and present? Next time on Q, I'll chat with writer Julia Lee about her look at The Little Rascals and how the show both reflected and subverted stereotypes. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Radio Lab.